RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and as always, we are happy that you are here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. And um, I've been trying for the last two years since the Dark Side of the Ring episode with the fabulous Mula came on to find somebody to go inside uh, the fabulous Mula and her life and her booking the women and the, the accusations that were thrown around on that, that show. And, you know, I've reached out to some of her uh, former trainer trainees, some of some names that you would know, some names you wouldn't know. And um, nobody really wanted to talk. So as you know, I've been doing the talking shop of manias and I hope you enjoyed the one this past Friday night. Uh, that one was a blast and had some cool surprises and they taped in multiple locations. So there was a lot of things I didn't even know. So great, great to pop for those. But, um, uh, guy named night. I thought his name for 20 years was Nigel Sherrod at the end of the, we just taped the interview at the end of the interview. He said, Sherrod. So it's like the old days in the wrestling magazines where I thought the, I thought his name was Ole Anderson. And then, you know, he came down to Florida after like me reading about him and calling him in my mind, Ole Anderson. And, uh, they said, oh, Ole Anderson. And I'm like, well, I feel like an idiot. Well, now I feel like an idiot because I called him Nigel Sherrod. Sherrod Sherrod. Um, got to meet him. He's uh, uh, works with uh, Doc Gallows and uh, personal assistant kind of thing. Promote Helps promote all his different millions of uh, endeavors that he's working in. And um, and found out that uh, he is the Fight for Moolah founder. He was actually on that Dark Side of the Ring episode and um, and and got to know her very well uh, during the last maybe decade or two of her life. So I'm excited to have him on. We'll talk a little bit about Moolah, about the girls wrestling, how it was different back in the territory days and how hard it was to have to keep everything. You know, you got to remember there was no Internet. There's no cell phones. There's no price line. There's, you know, uh, so these girls would literally go uh, from Florida one week and then the next week they'd go up to Kansas City Territory, do, you know, around the horn, as they said, of all the different cities. And then they, you know, maybe go to Dallas, maybe come back for a week and then go to New York. Uh, you know, and it just and that continued. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, I don't uh, I, I don't know if. If the promoters called Mula, if Mula called the promoters, uh, but that had to be hard to do in, with with uh, the limited uh, technology they had. So you know, just to keep that schedule, um, I've worked in talent relations. Just to keep a schedule, uh, you know, of ten people is is difficult. So of fifteen or twenty women that's going all around the world, different places, different nights, has to be. Uh, Definitely interesting. I always was fascinated by that. So we'll talk to Nigel um, about that um, and about working with uh, Doc Gallows and his journey in the business. Interesting guy. So I hope you enjoyed talking Chopamania too. It was interesting. Very cool to uh, meet and hang out with um, Randy Orton's brother, who's a comedian in New York City. Had no interest in the wrestling business, but uh, was a, a, a fun guy to hang out with and get to know. And uh, got to see a lot of old friends, uh, people I hadn't seen in a while. And that, that's part of the fun of these talking shop manias. It's like uh, one person, you know, you get one person walks in and 20 minutes later, another person walks in you haven't seen in five years. Another person walks in you haven't seen in 10 years. Um, and a lot of times you don't even know who's going to be on because it's not like they have a format. This is all in their head. Uh, in notes that they do. It's not like they hand out formats like uh, like other companies. So um, this is in the mad minds of the Good Brothers and Rocky Romero. But um, but it was fun. And um, apparently there's going to be some documentaries from the first one and the second one behind the scenes. I know I was interviewed for those and uh, looking forward to those. I If you enjoyed the whole experience and you want to get a little bit more behind the scenes vibe, I would definitely recommend those in a big, big way. Because uh, you can see how much fun everybody had and, and, and the challenges that go in everything and the camaraderie of the boys and and everything that makes something a project like that really click. So um, definitely be on the lookout for that. Also, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at David Penzer, all one word. No politics. We talk wrestling. 
We talk a little fantasy football, a little music. Man, it killed me that uh, it tore me up that uh, Alex Trebek passed. Man, that one was hard to take in a hard year. What a what a fighter though, man. Ten days before he 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 lost his battle with um, pancreatic pancreatic cancer, um, he was on the set of Jeopardy taping shows, which blows my effing mind. Because if I was in that situation. I'd be curled up in a ball with a bottle of booze, crying my eyes out probably. Not to look like a, not to look like a weak person, but uh, I, I think probably uh, ten days out from having to, to pass from pancreatic cancer uh, would not be the, the highlight of of uh, of how I'd be acting. So for him to be on the set and doing that show, what a testimony to what a tough guy that was, and and got to meet him one time, just snap a quick quick picture. He was great. And um, uh, we still watch Jeopardy to this day. So uh, it's something that we uh, we enjoy in the house and we used to watch with the kids when they were living here and uh, keep score and all that stuff. So the, the one thing that's so frustrating is, you know, the answers to these, some of these questions on Jeopardy and you just they, they in the heat of the moment, you can't think of them. And uh, so I can't even imagine how frustrating it is to the, the people that are on the show competing for money because I was just competing for bragging rights against my wife and my kids. Anyway, um, got some tapings for Impact Wrestling coming up this week. So um, should be interesting going to Nashville and uh, looking forward to that. And um, want to uh, remind you before we pitch it to Nigel Sherrod, who I will introduce as Sherrod because it was pre-taped. Uh, we will um, just remind you that if you uh, like the podcast, be sure to leave a review. Be sure to uh, subscribe and you get it automatically every Monday morning. And uh, be sure to pass the word on. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your Instagram buddies, tell your Twitter friends. And uh, we appreciate your support always and look forward to continuing to do this with interesting guests for as long as you'll have us. So, ladies and gentlemen, with all that said... My rambling aside, please welcome this week's guest. He is the founder of the Fight for Moolah and a good guy and an old friend, Nigel Sherrod. Sherrod. All right, ladies and gentlemen, ever since the dark side of the ring came out about the fabulous Moolah a couple years ago, I've been trying to find a guest to talk about it. And, uh, Obviously, it's taken a couple of years. I invited um, several wrestlers that had wrestled under her, uh, that she trained, uh, people, the names that you would know, some names you wouldn't know, and um, nobody really had any appetite to uh, talk about it. So I kind of blew it off and then got to know a guy uh, named uh, George North, if you watch uh, Talking Shopamania and, and and that whole uh, series of, of uh, unique uh, wrestling uh, pay-per-views and uh, he also happens to be the founder of Fight for Moolah his name is Nigel Sherrod and I want to welcome this week to City Ringside to chat about his career but also about the fabulous Moolah how are you sir? David thanks so much for having me on and uh, I don't know about the George North guy a lot of people say we look alike but I don't know anything about that guy, <laughs> but I'm ready to dive in and talk to you about this because there's some fascinating stuff that you and I had talked about uh, a little bit at the, at the talking shop tapings. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested to discuss this subject with you for sure. Okay. You were on, correct me if I'm wrong, the um, dark side of, as a matter of fact, I know I'm not wrong. You were on the dark side of the ring episode about Moolah, correct? That's right. Yeah, they reached out to me because basically, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, when all this stuff happened with the fabulous Moolah, and I'm sure everybody that's listening knows what we're talking about with the Battle Royal being named and then taken away based on an Internet uh, petition to the sponsor of WWE's WrestleMania Snickers. But in response to that, I founded a little organization called Fight for Moolah. And basically what we did, David, was we interviewed women who worked with and for Mula and trained with her or either worked with her and they were from different organizations, but they worked with her in that time frame that she was, you know, on top of the game and involved in the wrestling business. 
So how did you get to know Fabulous Mulan? It's not sort of a strange, you know, I understand the women and, and you know, going to train, but how did, how did you get to know her? Well, here's the thing. Whenever I first broke into the wrestling business, and as you know, every generation is different, uh, but as it turned out, I had gotten a, a, a few numbers from, from folks uh, where to get my start at, and the first one that I dialed was the Fabulous Moolah, and we became fast friends. Um, she was so helpful in getting me in touch with the right people. Um, I mean, I was just a kid at this point in, in my early teens, and uh, eventually she gave me Vince McMahon's personal uh, secretary's phone number. And oh, wow. then after that, yeah, then after that, I was in developmental uh, when I was 17 and 18, uh, you know, calling matches at Deep South Wrestling. So she was very instrumental in helping me out early on, telling me what to look out for. I never physically trained with her because at that particular time, um, she was not doing that anymore. You know, I know that she has trained some male wrestlers or helped train them uh, like Chris Canyon and, and uh, the Patriot. Uh, Del Wilkes are, are good examples of male trainees that she's had. But at that point, it was more advice and telling me what to steer clear of and things like that. But she almost took on like a grandmother type role to me to the point where I referred to her as Nana, you know, and, and the family kind of adopted me as a as another one of her grandkids. So we just got to know each other through that and never asked me for a penny. Always was happy to give me, you know, whatever advice and, and things like that and go up and visit her and that kind of deal. So as a kid, that was invaluable. Sure. I oh, I don't know if she ever talked to you about this, um, uh, but I, I thought I'd ask. Um, I've always I'm, I'm always fascinated by how they did things in the territory days, uh, you know, because they did it without Internet, without cell phones. Uh, you know, you couldn't go on Priceline and a lot of. So I, did she ever talk to you about what the booking process was? I mean, uh, for all her stable of women, I know that, you know, they'd be in Florida one week and then they'd go, you know, some of them and then they'd go to Kansas City the next week and then they'd go to, to Madison Square Garden the next week. And then, you know, she'd have different troops that were all over the country. That had to be hard, I would imagine, to kind of keep up with. And she ever talked to you at all about how that was? Well, yes. And when I, she did, actually, and there's a couple stories there. Um, I, I guess I'll start out by, you know, when she first got started, um, it's a very famous story. And I think it was even discussed on Dark Side of the Ring. But in order for her to survive, um, she would get hot water and ketchup packets and make basically tomato soup. Um, at these restaurants, uh, she would, she would order those things and maybe something else to go along with it, but very, very poor. Um, she came from a family where there was 13 brothers and she oh, was wow. the only girl. So she learned how to become very tough in South Carolina. If you can imagine that time and her mother died when she was eight. So she, she really had a tough time and had to learn the hard way. And so I think when she got on the road, her determination and that kind of upbringing really helped her out because she just adapted, you know, you kind of do what you have to do. And at that particular time, women's wrestling, uh, again, we're talking about, you know, the fifties and, and, and that era, um, was not nearly as popular, especially with the boys. And so in traveling and touring, you're only in one, in one town, um, for maybe, like you said, three days or something like that. And then you're going across the country. So there, there was a lot of stories about, you know, how they'd be on the road, but this is one thing, David, that I don't think a lot of people have really thought about, but you know, you'll hear discussions about Moolah taking her percentage and things like that from the girls. I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do, but back in the nineties and, and before that, if you're making long distance phone calls, I know some wrestlers that I've talked to from that era said they would have phone bills of a thousand dollars a month just from talking to promoters, um, lining up dates and things like that. She had this big office in the back of her house that faced the lake there where the cottages were, where the girls would stay. And she had big pictures of herself and awards and stuff like that. But she would be in that office all the time making phone calls, trying to get the girls bookings. It was very difficult back then because even as Lou Fez said in his book, 
uh, I forgot the name. I think the book was called Hooker. Hooker, yeah. Uh, describing, you know, hooking opponents and things like that. And he said that he would not defend the NWA World Heavyweight Championship on a card where women were allowed to wrestle. Oh, so this I didn't was know kind that. of the resistance. Yeah, and and again, this is not. And and and, and when I say that, sometimes people will say. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, that was just the time period and everything. I, I don't mean that to disparage uh, Lou's name by any stretch of the imagination, but the reality of the situation is, is that it wasn't very well supported. Um, and this goes back to they're brought in as an attraction. So if the ladies are brought in as an attraction, now once she got a rhythm going, but again, like you said, there's no price line. Um, there's no internet, no cell phones. So you can imagine the hardships of facing those realities that I was just talking about and traveling. And so I did hear a lot of stories about that, but she persevered. She wasn't really one to lament on how things were or how hard they were. She just would go through it and get it done. So she would call the different promoters saying, hey, I got these girls available or I'm available this, you know, a couple of weeks from now or uh, three months from now. And do you know how far out they were booked? I, I really don't know how far out that she was booked, but yeah, basically, and and that's a, it's another great point to bring up. Yeah, Mula, because of that resistance, you know, had to stay on the phone day and night trying to get these girls booked. In fact, in in New York, it wasn't until 1972 that women were even allowed to wrestle in New York. Mula did that with Vicky Williams in Madison Square Garden, but. You know, she would have to be on the phone at all hours, getting these girls bookings, making sure that, you know, X, Y, and Z was where they were supposed to be and that kind of thing. But again, we go back to there's no Internet, there's no nothing. So much, much harder of a process back in the day. Really, she took some girls and and, in many cases that might have had bad upbringings or background. Take, for example, uh, Kate Glass, a.k.a. Diamond Lil, who was a midget wrestler, and Mula specialized a lot in that, too, uh, booking lady midget wrestlers. But she basically came from a family because of her stature and size. Her family was disappointed and was ashamed of her, and she would have to be put in the closet and things like oh my that. God. The company would come over, and Mula you know, took uh, somebody like that, gave them a skill, gave them a place to live, and um, and, and because of that, a lot of these women were able to function in society and have careers. Um, but a lot of women came to her broken. Now that's not all of them, but, um, you know, some of them came from great backgrounds and just wanted to wrestle, but some of them, she really saved a lot of these, a lot of these women from, from bad conditions, uh, that they, they were in. So she was very much like that willing to help out. But again, you, you get into the percentage and not understanding that background work that she does, if you're not counting that in, it does seem like, you know, 20% is a lot to take off the top or 25%. But she did a tremendous amount of work for these women and a tremendous amount of work to keep women's wrestling alive. Because if she's not out there making those phone calls, booking these towns, et cetera, does women's wrestling still exist today? Probably not. not and, and not to where the level that it's at now, which is incredible. Hey, you know, the the I, I never understood the whole uh, everybody being upset about uh, taking a percentage, even if it was 25 percent. When I people know my story, if they listen to this podcast and I don't know if you do, but um, my first foray out of the Indies as a ring announcer and into the wrestling business was a guy named Bob Roop went up to WCW who had taken me under his wing as an agent and he told me to called Jody Hamilton, who I'm sure you know if you broke into Deep South. And um, right. so I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I didn't know what they wanted me for. But his pitch was, and we've had Mike Jackson on this podcast talking about how it all started. I mean, this goes back forever. But his pitch was, find me five guys uh, a week that you could bring from Florida up to the tapings to do enhancement work. Uh, we'll rent you a van and pay for the gas. We're not going to pay you. But each of the guys will give you 25 bucks. And I think they're making 150. So I don't know the percentage, but it it was probably 20 percent, 15. I mean, it wasn't nothing. 
And, um, and you know, at first I was like, oh, they're, they're okay with that. And, you know, then I found out that you know, that's just the way it was. So, you know, if all the, if these women, um, and this was just for one di- one night in uh, in the Cobb County Civic Center or Center Stage. So I, I never understood the fury. You know, if you think about all the work that goes into having to get those, taking nothing away from the women and the money that they earn, but you know, it, this is a world where everybody, when they when they when they uh, organize you, when they give you a way to make money, a lot of times they get either a percentage of that money or they get paid by their company for doing that. You know, nobody works for free. Sure. I mean, Hey, look, I, I'll be open and honest. You know, I mean, I've, I've done agent work for people and I never, you know, sometimes you'll give a friend a break and say, Hey man, you keep it. Especially if you know your friend's down on his luck or things like that, or he or she, whatever. But, um, you know, it, it takes a lot. And of course the person that's setting everything up and making sure that you have your, you know, where you need to be, your directions, your hotel, all that kind of information, they, they got to have some sort of little cut. Like you said, it was very commonplace. You, you brought up Mike Jackson and of course, uh, you know, George South, all jokes aside, you know, about the George North gimmick and all that kind of stuff. He would do the same thing. Yeah, him know? and Stallion from North Carolina, Rip Rogers from Louisville, Mike Jackson from Alabama, me from Florida. Uh, eventually, I recruited um, Scott DeMore and some of his guys that would come down from uh, Canada and Detroit. Uh, and and also some guys from Baltimore uh, that would come down. So I, I have myself a little territory going. Then I got hired to be a ring announcer, and I think I took a pay cut. I think I told that story before. I was actually making <laughs> less to be a ring announcer than I was because I had people coming in from all over the, the country every week paying me booking fees. But um, but yeah, so I don't I don't have a problem with that, and uh, I don't know that anybody else should have a problem with that. If um, you know uh. Uh, Patrick Mahomes signed a monster deal with the Kansas City Chiefs uh, recently. Uh, last year, I think it was $400, $500 million. Uh, his agent got a percentage of that, and it wasn't it wasn't 150 bucks. Let's put it that way. There's people that, and I, and I know some in the sports business and the entertainment business that, you know, make millions and millions of dollars by getting other people booked. So uh, I, I, I never had any problem with that. As far as these accusations that came out on Dark Side of the Ring, um, tell me a little bit about that and um, what you were able to find out about the people that made the accusations. Well, David, you know, as I mentioned before, I I interviewed about 30 women um, and some of them are recorded. Some of them are written statements. They didn't want to do an interview. It was just a statement um, about that. But basically the word pimping was brought out moolah pimp me moolah pimp me and you know you you're well enough into the business and in the history of the business to know that that term meant something totally different um you know oh you're getting pimped out that means oh she's she's really booking you out all the time you know and whatever but you're accepting the rate that you're it's not like you didn't know the rate before you went out and wrestled you don't just show up and go, okay, uh, oh, I only got $10. You knew, as Beverly Shade, who was a wrestler that didn't work for Moolah at the, at Camp Moolah in Columbia, she was, she was somebody that worked in Florida with her husband uh, and she would go work and she'd say, yeah, Lil would call me sometimes. And, um, you know, she'd offer me say three or $400 to come up and wrestle in New York. And one of them was at a Shea stadium show. And she said, you know, I only got 300 or $400 that night. But she said, I'm the one that agreed to come and do that because I needed the work and wanted the work. If she got paid twelve hundred dollars, I wouldn't have known the difference. Um, You know, I accepted it at that rate. So it falls on me. But going back to the pimping, um, I feel like that term was used like she was pimping us out like she, you know, was just using us all the time and putting us in places all the time, which I don't understand how you could be upset with that. being in the wrestling business, I mean, that's kind of what you sign up for. Now, there were some specific allegations, and if you saw, uh, you did, Dark Side of the Ring, uh, Princess Victoria was one of the uh, females who had something to say about Mula, and she claimed that Mula had sent her overseas with a guy named Ernie, I believe, who's a photographer, and this was after uh, Princess Victoria had broken her neck 
for those that don't know Princess Victoria, she was uh, the, one of the first WWF women's tag team champions. Uh, she was one of the big stars at that particular time, especially in the early 80s. She broke her neck and came back. She couldn't wrestle. Lula let her stay at her uh, facility or whatever you want to call it there uh, for a little while. And then she told her, you know, that she had to go. But before that, she tried to set her up. And again, you know this, Dave, but maybe some of the listeners don't. You know, you would these girls would be booked out to go take pictures with these photographers, and they would put them in the magazines, et cetera, so on and so forth. So Mula sent Princess Victoria to do one of these photos, and according to Victoria, she said, the nicer you are to him, the nicer he'll be to you money-wise. And you've got a broken neck, so it's something you might want to consider. Well, all of a sudden, you know, flash forward to 30 years, almost 40 years down that road, the implication was that Mula was trying to get her to sleep with this guy. But if that's, if that is really the biggest complaint, um, I don't think we have much of a case in which is why I stood behind Lula. The, the only other thing that really came out was sweet Georgia Brown. Right. I remember. And sweet Georgia Brown was South Carolina's first ever Af- African-American female professional wrestler. And there were allegations from her daughter of abuse and things like that. But as we open that book, and kind of look into it, Buddy Lee, who was Mula's husband, uh, had a illegitimate son with Sweet Georgia Brown. His name is Michael, and um, he, Buddy Lee never admitted that, that was his son, but he looks just like Buddy Lee. And we interviewed Michael, and he said that there was no abuse. Buddy Lee was kind of the guy that took advantage of his mother, and Buddy Lee went on to managed the Dixie Chicks and big Nashville acts. Oh, yeah. Big, yeah. Speaking about getting a booking fee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you wonder what that booking fee was. And that's where Mula kind of learned the business was from Buddy. The entertainment booking and all that business was from Buddy Lee. But you, you look into all that. And really, Buddy Lee was the one doing the abuse. And again, th- these are tales coming from somebody's daughter who was a small child back in the day. And I think some of those stories get twisted around. For example, um, uh, Sweet Georgia Brown being thrown into a trunk of a car or having to lay on the floorboard. Well, as you know, David, and again, this is something that you know, but maybe not a lot of the listeners do. Back in the day, Bobo Brazil, very famous African-American wrestler. There's many stories about him having to ride in the trunk or being covered up with the sheet and the back seat of the, uh, of the vehicle. Because when you're going through these Southern towns in the fifties and sixties, uh, not very popular to just have, have you sitting up. I mean, it's a sad tale, but that's just the reality. We no, can't no, live that's... in today's times and, and try to compare them to, to yesteryear because it, it, we're, we've moved on. We progress as a society, but that was, that's how they had to do it. And so those stories get mixed up. And then before you know it, everybody that's on the internet, you know, is now all of a sudden an expert on a story that's taken out of context and just kind of basically that's it just taken out of context. And nobody's saying that Mula was an angel. I'm not saying that she didn't have disagreements and maybe she shaved more off the top, you know, one time or something like that because somebody owed her money. That's another thing that we don't really get into, but these girls, if they needed to loan money, Mula would loan them money. If they couldn't pay their rent, she'd just put it on the books. That was a very common theme as I interviewed these girls. They, you know, talk about putting it on the books. So a lot of times for Mula to get her money back, she would have to take a little bit more, you know, off the top because these girls wouldn't, wouldn't pay her back. But in terms of abuse, after interviewing 30 women over six decades, of Mula's career, none of them said anything to me about being pimped out or anything of the sort. So I think it was a case of we're in cancel culture right now. And if there's one story about it, uh, then, you know, you really don't have a fighting chance once the court of public opinion has made up their mind. The, the only other person that really had anything to say was Mad Magazine who was in the business for less than two years. 
she was six foot plus out of uh, the state of Florida. Right. And she claimed abuse. But again, Mula was in her late sixties at this particular time. Mad Maxine, a former college athlete. I don't know how much abuse you could really take from a woman that's five foot two and in her sixties in uh, that of Mula, but she claimed that Mula ruined her career. But in actuality, when I've gone back and interviewed people that worked at the WWF and women there and also just other staff, Mad Maxine no-showed uh, so many shows that Mula would have to fill in for, and they eventually let her go. So the whole Mula, you know, messed up my career because she was so selfish. You got to show up to the shows. Otherwise, you get cut. I think a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff is sour grapes, and unfortunately, Mula has passed, and that's when a lot of this stuff started rolling out. Well, as far, yeah, of course. Uh, as far as abuse, I mean, I guess, and I hate to say this because it's it's, but it's it's true if you really take it like that. I guess you could say the same as Stu Hart. I mean, this was a business where you got stretched if you wanted to be in it. You just did. Uh, you know, we have Mark Jindrak on a couple of weeks ago talking about, you know, going to the power plant and about how these, you know, these these jacked up, you know, amazing looking athletes would come in. And after 150 squats, they'd be puking, crawling out the back of the building. And I was there. I used to see it. Um so, I mean, is that abuse? I don't know. In, in 2020, I'm not sure where anything stands. Um, but 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 it was a different world. And, you know, the same with Eddie Graham. If you wanted to be in this business, you had to learn, like Luth says, you had to be a hooker, how to shoot. Because if a fan ran in, if a fan attacked you at a, at a, a bar, you, they, they wanted you know you to be able to defend yourself. And there's tricks of the trade that you could do that with. So, you know, I don't know how much is abuse and how much is, you know, I don't, you know, doing 200 squats is or, or, you know, getting stretched a little bit is, is unacceptable. But it, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't come into this with any predetermined uh, notion um, because uh, other than the, the booking fee stuff, just cause I was there, that's how I got my start in the business. So if, if I could do it, then fabulous Mula could surely do it. Uh, I was nobody. And uh, back when I was doing that. And um, but no, it sounds like it was, it was a lot of uh, a couple of people that maybe weren't happy. Look, you know, it's a tough business. And especially the, the wrestlers that were wrestling in the territory days, a lot of them were, were not making, you know, million dollar, a uh, uh, million dollars a year. And it was just a job. And after the job was over or the job or the territories went away. You know, they really hadn't saved much. They had a lot of great memories, um, but they had to find other work. And, you know, for people who had gone up and down the road, you know, uh, you know, and, and you know, p- people asked for their autograph and women would come up and and, and want to offer things to them, you know, for years and years and years. It's, it's, it's kind of tough. After WCW went out of business, I just I, I kind of got a little bit depressed just because I couldn't I wasn't going out going good evening fill in the blank city and getting that initial pop that you get at every at every show, um, so you know and then so I, I get it it's uh it's a rush and when that rush goes away it's uh it's hard to, to pass up so I get it. Um, what was the deal with the the house? I know uh, some of the girls said that the house was like it was like a barn. You said you were there that you stayed in the cottages. How how were they? Uh, so basically, the the cottages were just like little apartments. There wasn't a lot to them. In fact, um, I don't think you can go on the property anymore. You can maybe drive up if you happen to be around South Carolina. It's one hundred one Mula Drive, but it's a private residence now for veterans. Um, but those cottages were just very basic. You know, they had a little kitchen in there, uh, one, actually two bedrooms in a lot of them. Um, some of them were split type of uh, houses where, you know, one side, somebody lives in the other side, another. And, um, I, you know, basic type of place. I think Mula charged $300 a month or something like that back in the 80s. Um, but that was comparable to what everywhere else was. You weren't required to stay on there. As is that, that information, you know, oh, she required them all to stay there. It's like a prison. She didn't require you to stay there, but it's just easier for the girls because if they got, again, going back to if they got behind on their rent or if they needed to loan money, Mula was there to take care of it. Um, so it was an easier type of situation. Plus, the training was there. And to answer your question about the training, it um, people have said it was a, like a little barn. 
Um, it was probably, gosh, I, it's, it was almost like a pump house big enough to fit a ring into it. Um, you know, maybe, maybe twice the size of the ring at best. And that's what was in there. It was just that old wrestling ring and it was a hard bumping ring. But that's what they had. And that's, uh, I mean, Mula herself learned how to uh, wrestle on mattresses in a living room at her first house in Columbia, South Carolina, with their first husband, uh, Johnny Long. And uh, so that's what she came from. So this little ring was in a house just big enough, or a little building just big enough to hold, you know, the, the lady wrestlers that were in there, maybe 10 at a time, in a wrestling ring. So it wasn't really that big. But we go back to, and I hate to keep keep going back, but we talk about Stu Hart's dungeon. I mean, this was not a, a state-of-the-art training facility. It's where you roll around on mats and you learn how to hook people. You learn how to wrestle. You, you learn how to do the things that made people like Brett and Owen Hart household names. Um, so that's always kind of been one of those head scratchers for me, too. Uh, as far as Moolah's house goes, itself um Mula's house was nice uh but it wasn't like it wasn't like a, a huge mansion there was an upstairs to it with three bedrooms and i think downstairs there there was a a little bedroom an office a living room and that was about it so i mean she did she definitely had a, a a cool life but it wasn't like she was just taking millions and millions of dollars from these girls it was it was a life that she had built up and saved up and, and, and made something of her life, you know, kind of deal. So in terms of that, she was a very proud woman and it was a very presentable and nice place, but also it wasn't like she was just had a state of art, state of the art performance center or anything like that. Because again, the times they were in, that's what she, you know, what they had to work with. Did you ever get a chance to talk to Wendy Richter? Because Wendy probably, made as much money as anybody did, you know, basically that was linked up to, to Moolah. I'm glad you brought up Wendy because, uh, that's somebody that I, you know, wanted to discuss as well. Well, I never talked to Wendy about it. She never would take an interview. Same thing with Mad Maxine. Um, the only one of the, uh, actually it was funny because princess Victoria interviewed with us and Michael McCoy, sweet Georgia Brown's, uh, son interviewed right. with us, but neither Wendy, Wendy Wood, uh, nor Mad Magazine. But the thing about Wendy is this, and I've co- corroborated this story with several different other lady wrestlers from that particular time. Wendy got brought into the WWF by the fabulous Moolah. And while Wendy was a good looking young lady at the time, and a good, a good lady wrestler. In fact, one of the best in the world at that particular time, if not the, um, they put the championship on her. They put her in that main storyline. They put her with Cindy Lauper. They did all this kind of stuff. And she was really starting to get over. And she demanded that she get paid as much as Hulk Hogan to Vince McMahon. I remember that's where, that's where the screw job came in. Because, you know, it's kind of like <laughs> my, my parents used to say, you know, we brought you into this world. We can take you out. And it's kind of like the same thing. Don't get too big for your britches because as fast as that push comes, it can go away. And I've talked and I won't name names, but I've talked to several lady wrestlers who worked with Wendy after that. And she always regretted that and would admit it in private, but would never publicly really say anything. And all respect to Wendy, but you go back and watch the dark side of the ring, and she's talking about how she didn't know that it was Moolah underneath the spider lady outfit on that fateful day where the uh, screw job happened with Wendy and Moolah. And, David, you know as well as I do that if you've trained with somebody, the duration that those two ladies had trained together and worked each other as many times as they had, you can smell, I can still smell on Moolah's jackets. What, you know, you would smell that as soon as you open the door at Moolah's house or whatever. It's a distinct smell. You also, even, even if it's not that, there's a style, there's a touch. When you work somebody that much, you know who's under that hood. And on the dark side of the ring, she said she had no idea that it was Moolah until she ripped off the mask. So I don't really know 
where some of these women are coming from, you know, is it we're still trying to protect kayfabe. Um, we're still trying to make her out to be some sort of heel. I, I just don't know you know, on, on that side of things with Wendy, but I do know that she demanded more money. And then basically that's what caused her demise. Yeah. She took it. She, she, she took the push seriously and you know, it wouldn't be the first, it wouldn't be the last person to take their push seriously and ask for something that wasn't going to happen and, and, and had to start from scratch, quite frankly. Well, not only that, David, and I, and I don't want to, I'm, I'm not going to be too strong on this comment, but I'll just kind of leave it up to, anybody listening had Wendy not done that because realistically let's look at what happened after that the women's division died basically until the late 80s when they did started doing the tag team stuff had she not done that how far along further would we have been with women's wrestling would women's wrestling have been taken to a whole nother level because again Wendy Wendy was up there Wendy was up there for those that weren't around or realized the capacity. I mean, she was up there uh, in, in terms of being a huge draw. And even uh, on MTV, I believe her match uh, with Leilani Kai is nine, nine million viewers tuned in to watch that. I'd have to say that's probably the most watched women's wrestling match of all time. But you would think so. You can't and- go in there and demand that kind of money. And expect for Vince McMahon, the most powerful promoter in the world, not to say hit the bricks. <laughs> We're good. Yeah, I mean, she was popular, but she wasn't. Uh, she wasn't Hulk Hogan, that's for sure. Nothing against her. There's right. Very. There are Hulk Hogan's Hulk Hogan for a reason. Uh, but the one thing is, she was over because Cindy Lauper was hugely over at the right time. She had girls just want to have fun, uh, uh, right in time for MTV and the whole video thing. And she had a unique style and a unique voice. And she was very, very over. And she got to put, they put her with Wendy. You can make an argument that any competent, attractive, or even unattractive uh, wrestler could have been put with uh and I don't mean to make this a shit on Wendy Richter session. I really don't. But it's, I think she's probably re- realized the, the reality, too, is she got over because she was put with uh, with uh, uh, Cindy Lauper, who at the time was a huge sensation. So it right. is who it wouldn't is. get over. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was my point. If you put me with Cindy Lauper back in 1984, I'd be a huge deal. Hey, Lou Albano <laughs> was a huge deal. Um, right. Hey, I appreciate you. um You've uh, given us that background. I, I wanted, like I said, I wanted to talk about it for a while, but nobody really wants to talk about it. Maybe because when they talk about it, it comes out that, you know, just exaggerations. I don't know. Like you said, I'm sure she wasn't perfect. And, you know, as a back then, it was, the business was uh, was a little dicey sometimes. And, uh, you know, that that's the life you lived. Uh, but um, tell me about your journey in the business. You mentioned how you met her. You mentioned going to work uh, for Jody at Deep South Wrestling. Uh, how was that? I, I, you were doing play-by-play, right? I was doing play-by-play, yeah. And uh, it was crazy because I'd only been in the business for, you know, maybe a year, year and a half. And um, and, and, and they immediately took to me. And it was a, it was a, a wild journey because, um, you, you know, I had just been removed maybe a year or two from being a super fan. So getting to work with all of these talent, you know, at the time, I mean, again, this is a WWE developmental center. So like, I remember when Kane came in there for the first show and guys like that and Booker T and, you know, Teddy long, all these guys that I grew up watching, you know, at the time, uh, William Regal and Chris Benoit used to come up there a lot as well. And I mean, there was just so much great talent. That was, that's one of the best times in my life. Because that's where I met uh, Drew Hankinson, a.k.a. Luke Gallows. And that's where we really hit it off. But that was a lot of fun because, you know, as anybody that's been in the business knows, you know, those first couple of years where you're really taking everything in, it's it can be crummy at times, but it's really magical because everything's new. You're still a fan. And I'm still a fan today. But, you know, it's that first foray into something. And it couldn't have been a bigger experience to be out there with Bill DeMott calling the matches, you know, every week. And to be honest with you, that made me such so much better of an announcer. And also it gave me a lot of mental strength because, you know, Bill wouldn't sugarcoat anything, but it, it made me better at my job. If that, if, if that makes sense. Um, some people are like that. Some people aren't, I guess. 
but it was a really fun experience. And then from there, because of Mark Jindrak, uh, I was a part of the MTV show, Lucha Libre USA Masked Warriors. So I moved on from Deep South after that shutdown to, uh, to host that MTV show with uh, Jindrak and a bunch of great luchadors. And you're now uh, working with uh, uh, Doc Gallows. Uh, what, what, do you have an official title or are you just? Well, I'm, I'm basically just, uh, you know, his assistant right now. I, I do several things for Talk and Shop and, um, and, and, for, and for Drew, you know, Doc, whatever. Yeah, he, has li- uh, he, has, he has live events in Georgia. He has a wrestling school. He has, you know, obviously, right. and obviously the podcast, the, the rum, the beer, the T-shirts, the cartoon. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, waiting for an, I'm waiting for when an album's coming out or CD, whatever they call it. <laughs> Well, well, uh, it, it's just around the corner. <laughs> we, we're, we're soon to tackle those things too. But yeah, I mean, anybody that follows Doc's career knows how much that he's doing and you might not see me or hear about me in every interview that he does or things like that. But a lot of that behind the scenes stuff is, uh, I'm making the phone calls. I'm sending the emails. I'm, you know, doing whatever it takes on my side because he's such a busy guy. Right. that it takes another person. And then I also work with the talk and shop uh, podcast as well. I'll, uh, you know how it is sending out emails for advertisers and so on and so forth. And for example, like the talk and shop mania pay-per-view that we shot and talk and shop mania too. Uh, I handled the travel, you know, so you're talking yes, about you hotels, flights, you know, that kind of stuff. And if, if you don't do that, often or you've never done that before it can be very overwhelming and so taking that kind of stuff away from the boys so they can focus on the show the creative of the show that kind of stuff and just focus on what they're doing to produce the show any little thing like that i I take care of for him so that's what i'm doing now but uh, you know I, i really like i mentioned before when drew and i met almost 20 years ago we hit it off instantaneously. He was like a big brother to me. So it's just all kind of like a weird circle of life. I had stepped away from wrestling uh, after I had gone out to California for a couple of years and trained for uh, women of wrestling. And they had a show on access TV and I later became an associate producer there. But I decided when I got back from that to take a hiatus from, from wrestling. And then wouldn't you know it because of COVID everything, you know, what's old is new again. And Drew wound up getting released from the WWE and I wound up coming off of the road and together it just kind of all worked out. And here we are uh, at Talking Shop of Mania 2 on Worldwide Pay-Per-View again for the second time this year. I don't think anybody would have ever, you know, seen that coming. No, how much fun are those? I know how much fun I have, but they're long days, but uh, it's a blast. Oh man, it is, it's, it's so much fun. The first time you remember <laughs> the first time it was like a huge party at, 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 at doc's house. And, um, that would be an understatement. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to keep it. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep it as PG as possible, but there was a, you know, I tell you, it was just like a huge party. Everybody's up till four o'clock at night, five o'clock in the morning. And, um, you know, and then, and then we're trying to get everything going the next day at eight thirty, And, and it's like, where's drew at? <laughs> There's that famous story where Rocky and Chad show up and they're like, is drew ready? And he, he eventually comes out of his room groggy and, you know, <laughs> hungover. So this time we had a, and I'm not saying anything that hadn't been publicly said on, no. on other radio interviews and things like that. But this time we kind of had more of a game plan, but a wrench was thrown into it because drew was filming another show and he was gone the whole day of the main shoot day at talking shop of mania too. And so he wasn't there. <laughs> so it was just more chaotic, but we learned, we got more organized. We put mostly everybody in the hotel this time, because after last time, I think they had to pay. I, I, I don't even want to put a number out there, but it was an ungodly amount of dollar bills to uh, clean doc's house. I can imagine get all those. Yeah, and get all those flies from uh, from the basement where the doors had just been wide open all day and people drinking <laughs> beer. <laughs> so it was a big party. We were able to kind of calm it down a little bit this time. But if if you want to get the real experience, 
and I don't know if you've seen this or not, but Asai TV, and I believe it's also available on Fight as well after the pay-per-view tonight, they did a documentary on Talking Shopamania, the first one. They did a second documentary on it, which I'm sure you're, you have interviews on both, uh, David, but it'll be available on Asai TV or either Fight TV. Um, and the documentaries really kind of give you a, a, a unique behind-the-scenes look at how everything was going. So after you watch the pay-per-view, maybe go check that out. It's, it's really good stuff. Yeah, that was I, I remember them taping that and that, you know, that really captured the essence. And, you know, it was just a cavalcade of, of wrestling legends, people you hadn't seen in 20 years. Hell, Mark Jindrak walked in and I said to him, he goes, Penzer, I said, I don't think I've seen you since the last Nitro. He goes, no. And, and, and you know, met Randy Orton's uh, since the paper, since uh, this airs after the pay-per-view. The, met Randy Orton's brother, who's a, a, a great guy. And um and had some great stories. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was cool. Hey, you mentioned, <laughs> you, you mentioned, uh, coming off the road, uh, you work for, as an announcer for the Harlem Globetrotters, which is a job I applied for like 20 years ago and didn't get, um, tell, t- tell me what's w- without going too much into it. What's, what's the similarities between pro wrestling as a, as an event and the Harlem Globetrotters and what are the differences? Well, uh, the difference is, well, let's start out by the Globetrotters just all together. It worked as a perfect fit for me to transition into that because I, I've had a lot of fun with wrestling, but I kind of just, you know how it is, maybe try a different flavor of the entertainment business for a year or two just to see how it feels sure. and uh, doing something different, you know, and you, you have to constantly reinvent yourself, as you know, David, and, uh, anybody else in the wrestling business or entertainment business, but it, it, it fit like a glove because essentially it's the same business. You know, we're doing live events. We're going, there's probably 4,000 people, uh, 5,000, sometimes as many as 8,000, like when we were in uh, Los Angeles at the uh, Staples Center. Um, and you'll have those people, but we're just like wrestling and just like any other live event, you know, obviously we want them to buy the merchandise. We're constantly pushing the sponsors, the merchandise, the Harlem Globetrotters are really big on fan interaction. So we have a lot of opportunities where local karate studios, dance studios, uh, whatever might have you can come and perform there at the show or, you know, people singing the national anthem. There's a lot of little moving parts that change on a daily basis. So as far as that goes, it's a little bit different than wrestling in the sense that, you know, at the bigger shows, we don't have that kind of stuff. And even at the smaller independent shows, you don't have that much going on. It's go meet the guys at the table. They handle themselves. They sign the autographs. They do all that. But with the Globetrotters, it's really, there's a lot going on when it comes to those groups that are coming in. But essentially, it's a show just like wrestling is. And we want everybody to leave with a smile on their face. I don't think the Washington Generals have won a game since 1971. Did they win um, one in 71? They won in 71 in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, <laughs> according, according to uh, Coach Blacklock, who was the coach on my team. But I, I want to say that the Globetrotters are kind of similar to the WWF, at least in, in, in terms of the touring, or they were before COVID you know, took over, and that we have three different tours running at any one time in the United States during the season that we're, that right. we're touring. And uh, there's a red, white, and blue tour. And then there's a tour that goes overseas. So essentially we do – another difference is, too, is whereas in wrestling, you know, you fly out, you do TV, and then maybe you've got two or three house shows, and you fly back home, and you're home for two or three days. It's different in that we fly out. For example, I flew out to Chicago. We did our first uh, game there at the, where the Bulls play. And uh, I can't think of the name of the arena, but, um, and then we're on the road for 130 days, you know, yeah, you maybe were telling me that. that that's crazy. Yeah. And, and you're doing doubles and stuff like that. So by the time you're done with it, you know, you've done 130, 150 games, um, in the span of about three and a half, four months. And then you come off the road, but you, you never fly back home. So once you're on the road, you're just locked in. So in a lot of ways, it's very similar to the touring of, you know, the WWF back in the day. However, on the flip side of that coin, 
We don't have to get rental cars. Uh, we travel in a bus. Our meals are ready for us when we get done with those late night games. The hotels are, you know, taken care of. So it's a little bit of a different vibe there. Uh, I think we get taken care of there. I say it a, a, a little bit better than in the world of professional wrestling. Um, it's, it's run a little bit more like more other corporate. entertainment companies more and productions. Corporate, yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. This has been a fun conversation. I appreciate you coming on, talking about Moolah, a little bit about yourself and your career. And uh, I've gotten to know you over the past uh, five or six months. And uh, it's been fun, man. Hopefully we'll be doing uh, uh, number three. Uh, I wonder how, how long Carl could hold out on that one. <laughs> well, I, I hear rumors that number three, depending on the state of how everything goes in the next couple of months, number three might be a live show. So we'll just kind of have to keep that. And in, in, in the back of our uh, pockets, but oh, yeah, that, <laughs> who knows? That, that would be interesting. If Carl can last. Yeah, it really would be an add a totally different uh, element to the show. So I'm just, I'm excited about all things talk and shop and, and I was excited, you know, and thanks for having me on, on your podcast, David, because you're one of the announcers that, you know, I was, uh, I don't think that I've ever even shared this, you know, in per- maybe we have, but I watched you, you know, as a kid and always enjoyed your presentation, always you know, looked up to you as an announcer. And so it's a, it's a blessing and an honor to be, you know, invited and to be able to call you a friend and, and be on the show today. Well, so thank I really you. do I appreciate, appreciate it. No, I appreciate the kind words. And what are you saying? I'm old. <laughs> no, 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 I am, I, am, I am old. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, do you have a social media site that uh, people could follow you at, or you're not really into that? Uh, no, I do on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's all slash uh, Nigel Sherrod, or you can just go to Nigel Sherrod, uh, S-H-E-R-R-O-D is how you spell my last name, dot com. And it'll I always thought it was Sherrod. I've been mispronouncing it for 20 years. Sherrod? You know what? Some people say Sherrod. Some people say Sherrod. I just always say I've been called worse <laughs> by my ex-girlfriends. So you pronounce it however you want to, but either way, that's how you get to it. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, all things, Nigel, that's where you can get to it. And, uh, Instagram is where you can find me the most though. So, all right. All right. Well, we look forward so, to yeah, the thank you for talking, talking shop and mania and those, um, those documentaries should be a blast. So I'm, I'm looking forward to checking those out as well. Thanks, uh, Nigel. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, David. We'll talk okay. soon. That was a fun interview, and I thank Nigel for doing that. And I'm excited to see those uh, documentaries for Talking Shop of Mania 1 and Talking Shop of Mania 2. That should be a blast to watch. And uh, and I would encourage you to, uh, without even seeing them, I saw them being taped. I would encourage you to to check those out. If you like the whole Talking Shop of Mania vibe, you're going to love the behind-the-scenes stuff uh, as well. And um, as they say, we're off to Impact. Nashville, here we come. So... Uh, not sure if we're going to be able to get a show out uh, next Monday, but if not, we will uh, definitely open up the vaults and uh, check out the vaults, by the way, if uh, the archives of the show we've had. It's amazing. The who's who of, of, of wrestling personalities, women, men, promoters, uh, announcers, referees uh, that tell their story. Um so uh, if we don't get uh, an episode next week, because I'm going to be in Nashville the entire week, uh, be sure to check out the archives and, um, and uh, you know, uh, let me know which episodes you enjoy. You know, last week we had uh, uh, Curtis Hughes. We talked about his career. Today was more of like a historian talking about the fabulous Mula. But it's always good to change it up once in a while and uh, cover all, all aspects of the professional wrestling business past and present and future. Until next week, this is David Penzer, Still City Ringside. See ya. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Landry Football Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Looks like we're headed to a greater propensity of these games getting, well, in some cases, canceled. 
and some to this point postponed, but we're running out of postponing dates. I have a real concern, and I really think there needs to be a concerted effort, particularly at the big-time level, and I know that it is expensive, but let me remind folks that, for example, the SEC loses money by not having the Alabama-LSU game being played. CBS doesn't have to pay. That's They get a rebate for that game not being televised. So there's money at stake or money lost when you can't play. So it would behoove in my mind. I, I would look at it. And, of course, college football is so poorly organized, so poorly run, and it's so individually run that I think at the major college level it would make a whole, would have made a whole lot of sense and would make a lot of sense for them to say, look, most of the colleges are sending their kids home for Thanksgiving in a week, and they're not bringing their kids back to campus. It's going to be virtual learning for the rest of the semester. It would make all the sense in the world to basically, in a bubble, bubble up your teams, like you saw in the NBA, Major League Baseball, I don't think – I think it would make a lot of sense to – yes, it would cost money, but you could perhaps save the rest of the season. I, I, I just think it would make a lot of sense. The Landry Football Podcast with veteran scout and coach Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>